Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Carly Stone and Amanda Fix, the director and star of North of Normal. That's the true story of Sia Sunrise Person, who at age 15 was working as a high fashion model in Manhattan and Paris. The new movie tells the story of her unconventional childhood with free-spirited mother Michelle, played by Sarah Gadden in the film, and the journey from the wilderness of Alberta and British Columbia to the runways of the fashion world. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know best-selling author Tom Rockman, the author of four works of fiction, including the latest one, The Imposters, the story of an aging and embittered novelist who knows that her mind is going. She's determined, however, to finish her final book and reverse her fortunes before time runs out. Alone in her London home during the pandemic, she creates and is in turn created by the fascinating real characters from her own life. First, though, let's get to know Paul Langlois. Best known as the guitarist and songwriter for The Tragically Hip, he was asked to play the closing ceremony of the Canada Summer Games in Niagara Falls in August of 2022. That gig got him playing again after Gord Downey's passing and the breakup of the hip and rekindled his love for songwriting. From there, the collection of songs that became his new solo record, Guess What?, emerged. In this interview, we talk about the music he wrote that is rooted in Gord Downey's untimely passing, being a solo artist, and much, much more. Paul Langlois joined me via Zoom from Kingston, Ontario. It matters to me. It matters to no one. It matters to me. I think that this record sounds like someone who's writing back in kind of an interesting way, looking back at their life and lines like, I'm feeling damaged, keeping my feet on the ground was all I could manage, seemed to me to be something like the line that could only have been written by someone with some life experience. Even when you say that line, it's kind of odd for me to hear it because mm. uh, it's uh, my manager who's also the HIPS manager, Jake Gold, um, when he first heard it, he was like, wow, it's really like, it's really personal, isn't it? And I was like, well, I don't know how to uh, write songs. I don't know any other way but um, but the truth, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I can't, um, it just doesn't, if, I, if like, you know, the young guys walking down the hill, like I just can't get my <laughs> head around anything but... Um, my experiences and um yeah you know that one was just uh that was kind of in a uh fog as we all were um uh a grieving fog after gore died and um you know i just thought of writing a song and i was just like i don't know i'll just wait around and and see if a song comes and of course it didn't and uh so then i just i don't know somehow i let go and i i just uh started writing songs that um kind of told my truth and and you're right kind of looking back and assessing and um you know just looking back at my life and and how things have gone <laughs> you really get a sense that this is a record that is very personal uh for you and i mean there is don't leave me brother which is a song about gord and uh you know his passing 
And I wonder if when you write a record uh, like this, if it's cathartic or if it is just the thing that you have to do so that you can manage to keep your feet on the ground. This one was cathartic for sure. And I think that's more because of the band. I mean, if I just did this on my own, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been so free to, um, I wanted to write good songs and I wanted yeah. a band playing a good band and um, which ended up to be all my buddies here from Kingston. And, um, <laughs> you know and enthusiasm and that kind of thing so you know it's disguised in rock and roll and um you know the songs just came out more because i had a deadline you know we were going to go in the studio in <laughs> november and here it was uh mid-september and i really only had one or two and i was just like i gotta just get to it and and write these songs and um lyrics of course are harder than music for me. And so I just let it, I just let it go. Deadlines are great in that way. They push you to do things that you never thought you could have done. If you had had all the time in the world, this would be a much different record, I bet. You know what? Uh, without question, a deadline has always been the best. Um, and and within the hip too, you know, mm -hmm. we would be like, okay, we're getting together Friday. So then on Wednesday, it's kind of like, okay, I need three good ideas that these guys are going to like. Yeah. And so the deadline pushes you, or it's like singing at a wedding or something, you know, um, I have to finish this song because the wedding's Saturday night and it's, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden it's Saturday afternoon and you haven't finished it. So the deadline really helps. I, th I think it helps everyone in life, you know, just like, okay, yeah, I got to be there too. And that's it. You're listening to Paul Langlois on The Richard Krause Show. His new album, Guess What?, is available now wherever you buy fine music. Tell me a little bit about some of the um, uh, influences that you may have had. When I was listening to this record, I was wondering if you were listening to kind of uh, Let It Bleed era Rolling Stones. I heard, I think, the expensive winos in there uh, a little bit. What What were you listening to? But uh, I mean, both those bands, yeah. Uh, you know, I love the Stones um, that, you know, big influence on the hip, obviously, okay. and um, and the expensive winos and Keith, and, uh, you know. It, there's a looseness to your record that reminded me of the expensive winos. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, there's this kind of like vibe that I got from it. Like, you've got just amazing players and they're, they're going to do what they do best, but it's not... Um, it, it didn't feel to me like it was something that you would road tested for months and months and months and then perfected every note and everything. There's just a great looseness to it that feels like rock and roll to me. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. And and I think that was the process. I, I mean, we rehearsed um, in advance of going into the studio, but, you know, uh, of the other four guys in the band, four out of four work other jobs. So we were in there for eight days, but uh, the only time um, that uh, the five of us were all in there were, were three of those eight days. Wow. And we got it all done then, and we played it all live, and I I played guitar and sang live. I changed one song because my voice was a bit scratchy in hindsight, so I had to redo that one. But um, otherwise, it's just us playing live, and I think that um, the hip love to do that, and I think it provides some sort of, as you say, just kind of looseness, 
but also r- realness, reality. You know, it's just like this is a, just a band playing. Yeah, yeah, and there's a, like an authenticity I think that comes with that. Uh, that really comes through not only in the kind of personal nature of the songs, but in the playing here. Like I, I just, uh, I felt like I was listening to uh, um, something uh, like a band playing in a smoky bar, which is always the best way to see a band. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, that's the way it felt at the time. It was like, yeah. you know, we didn't question much, it, you know, come in and Hey, we really like that take. And yeah. and then we would just go with that take. And, and um, you know, of course we had to add, uh, the backups, Greg Ball and uh, uh, mostly and Matt Mulvihill, um, just because they can't, they couldn't really be recorded at the same time. But we did manage. We were in the bathhouse, the Hip Studio, to isolate uh, my vocal and guitar, and isolate all the other sort of amps and mm-hmm. and the drums, so that uh, no one had to go back and and fix anything. You know, we we knew the songs pretty well and and, um you know i was quite happy and proud about that the tragically hip casts such a long shadow people love that band and continue to love that band when you release new music do you worry about comparisons to it to that band how how what what's your thought process how's your how are you feeling about it well I, i i think i do worry about um songs that kind of touch on hip ground mm. um a little bit it, it's you know i can't play any other way than i play and and you know um i was a part of the sound of the hip and so of course there's gonna be like uh, it just in guitar tone uh, my guitar tone um can't you know i'm just not into changing it, it, it it's just uh, it's just how I play and and what I sound like, but um, obviously there's no Gord, uh, you know Johnny, Sinclair, Robbie. So uh, I don't worry about it too much because I know I'm not, uh, you know, I'm certainly not singing like Gord. I'm 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 just kind of com- trying to come up with my own ideas. So I worry about it a little bit, but um, I'm not worried about it on this record. I probably have. A, you know, it's my third solo record. The other two were 10 years ago, but um, there's not really, there's maybe one or two songs um, where I think uh, that's a little, that's a little hippish, but um, what can you do? It's you know? you. Well, it's your, it's your, it's what was a Neil Young? That's my sound, man. When David Foster told him that he was singing flat on uh, um, the Canadian version of we are the world, whatever it was. Yes. Yes. Um <laughs> Uh, no, that was classic. Yeah, that was classic, and and it's true. You know, your sound is your sound, and yeah. and I don't get into like with vocally. Um, I'm not in the um, you know tuning a vocal or you know the, the that kind of thing. It's just I sing how I sing, play how I play, and I really felt that way about the other four guys that they were uh, just doing what they do, and and I thought, hey. This is unique, you know. I, I, that's how you make unique music. I know there's a big push uh, of uh, away from that, but um, it's it's what I like, and um, it's it's what I stuck to here. That was Paul Langlois on the Richard Krauss Show. His new album, Guess What, is available now wherever you buy fine music. 
Let's get to know Tom Rockman. He's a best-selling author, journalist, and news editor who has reported from India, Sri Lanka, Japan, South Korea, Egypt, Turkey, Rome, and elsewhere. His latest novel, The Imposters, is the story of an aging and embittered novelist who knows that her mind is going. She's determined, however, to finish her final book and reverse her fortunes before time runs out. Alone in her home during the pandemic, she creates and is in turn created by the fascinating real characters from her own life. Tom Rockman joined me via Zoom. Between a recent article that you wrote for the Globe and Mail in which you uh, said, among other things, how presumptuous, engaging in make-believe and asking strangers to admire it, uh, and a number of the events in your book, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Dora, the main character, throwing away all her books. There's another character, Eric, I think his name is, leaves his manuscript in the back of a cab. Uh, there's you, you seem to be having maybe a, a, a troubled relationship with the idea of uh, yourself as an author, and it seems to be coming out in your work. Am I way off base with that? I think you're standing right on the base. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 it is a, a a troubled and strange situation to be a writer today. And I have to begin by making clear that I feel incredibly lucky to be able to write. I love to do this, and it's amazing that I'm able to just about support myself from from writing. So. Uh, I feel uh, I'm amazingly fortunate, and that's the that's the key part. But when you're working and you're sitting locked away in your study, typing ferociously and hoping that you're creating something that is of interest of, to others when it's certainly engaging you, you then eventually stop typing and you stand up and look around and you see a culture that is extraordinarily flooded with information and ideas and words and sounds and films and entertainments. And, and the nature of literature is that it requires close concentration. It requires a certain amount of focus. And if you enjoy books, then all of that focus and concentration is repaid many times over from the, the, the joy of sinking into a story like that. But it's harder for, for everybody, myself included, to attain that level of concentration and focus. And the result is that it feels like literature is gradually being crowded out a little bit. Not that literature is, is about to die or anything. It still exists and has many strengths. But it feels like possibly the position that it has in society is being relegated a little bit. And that's terribly sad and uh, for a writer to see. And um, But it's also true that no writer has a right to be heard, to be attended to. You have to convince people that there's something to say. And all throughout history, most writers have been, just like most people doing anything artistic, have been entirely overlooked. And sometimes it was absolutely justified, and sometimes it was less justified. But the point is, is that there isn't space for everybody, and you can't expect it. Um, in this period in time, it does feel like it's harder than ever to have people pay attention to to fiction and that makes it a little more difficult when you stand up from your from your from your desk is the structure of your book a response to that it feels like a, a number of short stories now they all work together they they're thematically linked and they are linked by character and that sort of thing but was that a response to uh, what we've just been talking about in that you've made it more easily digestible in almost bite-sized pieces? 
No, it was never it was never calculated that way. Really, what it is is that my very first novel, The Imperfectionists, had a structure that was quite similar to this. And it's it's sort of a novel in stories is how I think of it. You're listening to Tom Rockman on The Richard Krauss Show. His latest novel, The Imposters, is available wherever you buy fine books. So each of the chapters stands alone as, uh, as its own tale, but they're sewn together by uh, a, a thread, a narrative thread that begins before the first chapter and, and um, goes between each of them. And that is the story in this case of Dora Frenhofer, who is an aging novelist who's trying to write the novel that you're reading. And it eventually draws all of those parts together in ways that the reader, I hope, doesn't expect and, and is surprised by. And, and ultimately, I hope, is satisfied by them as well. So it was something that I had tried in The Imperfectionists, where I had a, a similar idea of separate tales of people who were somehow interlinked so that they would appear in each other's stories, too. And I, I found it tremendously satisfying because I love short stories and I also love novels. And, and this offered a, a way to cram both into the same book. So it does have the effect of allowing people to dip in and read an entire story, but also have the the the, the satisfaction and longer term gratification that you can get from uh, a from the protracted tale of a novel. So it's a bit of both, but it's 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 something that I did. You know, I I first did several years ago when when all of the craziness of social media and stuff had barely been born. So it wasn't really a response to that. More more just a, a, a form of storytelling that I love. I would expect that it's a, a complicated uh, way of writing, though. Do you know the end of the book as your beginning? It, does it does it present itself to you along the way? Is there a treatment? Uh, how does it work? Because it is it, it's it's complex. Yeah, the way that I work is that I begin by putting in all the commas, and then I stick all the words around the commas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only. No, uh, I. I always have, yeah, I always have an idea of how it's of how it's going to be. And really part of what I'm curious about and what excites me about this, about writing in this way, is that I know what the stories are going to be. What I don't know is the effect of putting those stories together mm-hmm. and the juxtaposition of these different characters at different points. And and it always adds an extra layer and, and all sorts of different thematic uh, ideas that just come out in the process of putting one thing beside another, just as... If you were putting one piece in a collage next to another, you might be focused on that singular piece. But then once you stand back and look at them all together, it suddenly has a different shape and color to it. And that's the effect that it has. So I always know exactly uh, the the idea of what it's going to be. I don't know the effect until I have one. I have a, a first draft. Are you one of those writers who really loves the the art of the rewriting and going through and and figuring out what the new purpose and plan for the book could be? Definitely. I, I don't know that I, I, I don't always love it. Uh, sometimes it can be, it can feel like, like drudgery to when you know what you want and you're not there and you've got to do another revision. But overall, I do love this kind of work and I love returning to it. And I think that part of the reason is that when I was starting out as a writer, then the, the early drafts were excruciating because at that point, you you look at you think you you get excited by the writing of it. You go back and you look at what you've written, and you're appalled at just how poor it is compared to what you imagined. It doesn't at all match the thrill that you had in putting it down, and that can be totally defeating. And I think it often leads to to uh, writer's block for for some people that they just feel like I I'm afraid actually of looking at this. 
and, per and persisting with it. And I can't do it because it didn't work the first time. But once you've been through it a few times, then you start to realize that actually, if you continue to do revisions and further drafts, then gradually you edge this manuscript into the thing that you had in mind. And it's never precisely what you envisioned. It's better in some ways and worse in some ways. And just most of all, it's slightly different than you could have imagined because you couldn't, you couldn't hatch an entire 350-page book in your head without actually putting those words on the paper at first. But that process is, is, is one that is, is exhausting, actually, because in my case, I want it to be you know, as, as good as I possibly can do it. I imagine that's true for all writers, that you're determined not to put out something that isn't something that, that is as good a version as you could do of that thing. It's not, it's not going to be the greatest version conceivable, the best you could do. And that is, um, you know, when you get there, you know, I was talking about commas before jokingly, but there's a sort of, there is a, a relevance of the comma in all of this, because I found that I know I'm done when I'm just taking out commas and putting it, replacing them with semicolons. And then the next draft I change the take, uh, what did I use a semicolon there? I'll put in a comma. And once I'm just switching punctuation like that, I know, okay, this thing is done. So much of what we've talked about and what I, the book is about and what the article in the Globe and Mail is about, uh, is about what it's like to be a writer. Is Dora sort of your idea of what a writer is? Well, I don't think there is a, a single writer. There's just so many different variations on being a writer and different versions of it. The reason that she is the, the lead character in this book is because she's somebody I just found intriguing and fascinating, a, a, per, a, an, a highly intelligent but somewhat prickly woman in her mid-70s who was born in the Netherlands and traveled widely, had a, an extraordinarily sophisticated and full love life and intellectual life and created a lot of books along the way and lived quite an independent existence as well that she she was determined to do her work and she wanted that that was really central to everything was her writing uh, much more than her living with other people where the characters that she created mattered to her and as you say she's suddenly toward the end of her life and she's losing the key faculty that allows her to work and she's also lost any semblance of an audience for her work and struggles even to get published anymore. And so she's looking back and considering what happened, the people she lost connections with, the people she she loved, and somehow it all fell apart. And all of those characters in her past end up being stirred up into her fiction, almost as a way to somehow sometimes to fix what didn't work and sometimes to think it through. And I don't feel like that's uh, the only way to be a writer, but it's, uh, it's, it was a, a character and a person, a version of it that I felt I wanted to spend two or three years with because that's about how long it takes to write. And any character has to be somebody who is, is fascinating and intriguing enough for me that I have the outlines of that person like if you see somebody uh, sitting on their own at a table in a restaurant, you just think that's an interesting person. I wonder, I wonder about them. And as, a, as a, an author, I have the luxury of inventing a version of that person and sneaking into their thoughts as I imagine them and trying to figure out over months and years what that person might be. Douglas Copeland told me one time that his characters over time uh, it's almost as if they're standing on his shoulders and they're they're telling him 
what they want. Is that singular to him or is that something you've experienced? No, I think it's definitely so. I think that that it it's the the, the character is more is more determined and insistent the further on you go in the process. Mm. Early on, when you're still creating that character, then the character could say a number of things. But towards the end, it could only say a few things in, in any situation. It could only say perhaps one thing. In the story in the Globe and Mail, uh, you talk about doing what we're doing right now, promoting the book and uh, getting out there and, and, and submitting yourself to interviews like this one. Uh, is it a, a process that uh, you're getting more comfortable with? Is it a process that you enjoy? I was thinking when yeah. I was reading your article in the Globe and Mail, I was thinking about Salvador Dali. And in the 1970s, he became one of the first fine art artists to market himself as much as yeah. he did the paintings. And uh, he became a celebrity. And then when you're famous, you can sell more paintings. And it was a, it was a trade-off. And some say that it diminished his power as an artist. Uh, but we're still talking about him 50 years later after his death. So uh, I wonder. But it, it is that part. You have to market yourself. And for some people, that is profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's for, for listeners who haven't seen the, the article. It's it's a, a an essay that I wrote, which just explains how strange it is to be a novelist who is confined to a single room coming up with ideas and then suddenly is thrust into the public and has to be the sort of the spokesperson for themselves. And and it can be quite awkward and uncomfortable. And also, um, you know, it, it goes back to a comment I, I had earlier, I think, about the the combination of of um of, of privilege and challenge that the job is that that on the the one hand anytime you're invited to do anything you you really probably should run to that thing because people are interested and that what else are you trying to write for if not to communicate to people and have people interested you're listening to tom rockman on the richard kraus show his latest novel the imposters is available wherever you buy fine books but then if you turn up and You've got yourself prepared and you travel all the way out there and you're all excited about it and you're standing at the lectern and there's three people in the crowd of 50 chairs and, and you know, two of them are family relations and one of them works at a bookshop. Then you, you, start, to, you start to feel terribly diminished, even slightly humiliated and faced with, with the, the, the indifference of people to what you've really struggled to do. So it's, it's a strange thing. Um, you're, I think because people want in in artistic works they want to know who is the person behind it they want they want uh they want to understand the human and that is i think is fair and reasonable and fine but it so happens that we're in a in a period where um personal exposure is not only possible but it's sort of expected in every in every uh, in every corner of the culture really and it's the only way you can avoid it is if you're so immensely famous already that you can you can then you know you don't have to bother with it. But all the rest are compelled to sell their inner lives as a kind of you know packaged product, which I am speculating, but I think that probably most writers in part got into writing because they didn't want to be the one standing on the table and shouting at everybody, listen to me and watch me. They instead had thoughts that they wanted to formulate carefully and in private and revise and finally get it exactly right and then they hope people would listen to that so i think that the temptation of every writer or the inner wish is always to say when people say like you know tell me about your book and why i should buy it you sort of want to say well my if to tell you about my book is the 350 page book that's what the book is about um, but you can't be so 
you can't be um you can't be so disdainful you have to take the opportunities that are that are granted to you but some of these occasions are lovely and some of them are tough but when there's a chance to talk to to people who love books like i do and are interested and even better if they've actually read something that i've done then that's great to have that exchange is is the culmination of the whole pro process it's a double-edged sword too uh in the sense that i i've spoken with a lot of actors uh who don't want to give away too much about themselves because then you start to see the real person on the screen rather than the character that they're trying to portray and i would guess that if you are an author who uh, is out there doing a lot of press talking your, about your book endlessly you might get to the point where people think oh i feel like i've already read the book because i've heard he's been everywhere talking about it and so i i guess you do have to be very careful uh how you expose yourself and in what ways you do uh just for the betterment of the book i suppose so but i think that i think that probably most people who love to read uh know that it's it's not just the storyline that 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 um constitutes the book in fact that's unless it's if it's a thriller or something like that then often the thrilling story is the point and if you if you're starting to give away plot details then you would definitely ruin the book but if it's literary fiction then it's probably more to do with the characters the way it's written the psychological insights the ideas behind it and the experience of sinking into hours of this, these characters in the situation and trying to understand what's going on so the I, I don't think you can really give it away unless you were to expose you know plot twists which would be unfortunate and probably the writer would never do that it would just be it would be a um it would, it would maybe be a you know somebody who's who knows introducing the book in a way that's that's incautious but on the whole I think that um, that a a writer is probably nowadays lucky to get a hearing at all. It always feels that way to me. I always feel delighted if there's a chance to do it, even though another part of me and in the 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 overwhelmingly introverted part of me uh, is kind of simultaneously, you know, win wincing inside of me. But I also think, well, this is I'm lucky to have this attention at all. Well, you describe yourself in the Globe and Mail article as a schlub making cups of tea in your kitchen. <laughs> yes, that's true. Absolutely. At the moment, I'm not even in my kitchen. I'm just a schlub in a chair in an office. <laughs> well, thank you for taking some time out uh, of your day to speak to me. Uh, I appreciate it. And congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Richard. Always a pleasure talking to you. That was author Tom Rockman on The Richard Krause Show. His latest novel, The Imposters, is available wherever you buy fine books. The long, strange trip that is C.S. Sunrise Person's real life has been brought to vivid life in the heartfelt film North of Normal. Born and raised in the wilderness of Alberta and British Columbia, by the time she was 15, she was working as a high-fashion model in Manhattan and Paris. North of Normal tells the story of Person's unconventional childhood with her free-spirited mother, Michelle, played by Sarah Gadden. Michelle is not a good mother, but she is Sia's only support system, and their complicated relationship is nicely brought to life in the film, warts and all. Who looks after you? My mom does now. I was living with my grandparents in the Yukon for the last six years. I moved around a couple times with my mom and one of her boyfriends. Carl and I love each other. And he's an Aries. Fire! Stop the car! Stop the car! Hold on! Come on, Sia, we're going. So why'd they break up? They all break up. 
Here's Carly Stone and Amanda Fix, the director and star of North of Normal. The mother-daughter story just totally grabbed me. Um, The character of Michelle especially at first, I found her so interesting and I hadn't seen a mother like that or at least the way I wanted to portray her on screen before. So uh, Sia and Michelle's relationship felt so fruitful and I was very inspired by it. Well, Amanda, tell me a little bit about playing uh, Sia, because you're playing a real person, so right. there's a responsibility, I suppose, that comes with that. It Absolutely. is a movie, mm-hmm. but still, you know, she's going to watch it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe she was even on set, so uh, yeah, how did you yeah. feel about that? I mean, it's it's a big undertaking mm-hmm. to, play, to play a real-life person, especially someone who went through so much in in her life especially even at such a young age and I have no experience of going through anything that that she did remotely and so um yeah it was a it was it felt at first like a lot of pressure but I was so down for the challenge because it I read the script and I was blown away by it and I read the memoir and it's heartbreaking and beautiful and I talked to Sia and she was just like the sweetest about it. I don't know if if someone was playing me ever or, or other people who <laughs> who get played in films are are as have put that much trust in someone, especially me who I didn't have that much to show for me, you know, so so she just gave me her blessing and just wanted to capture that essence, especially between Michelle and Sia and and so I felt really supported, even though it's it's it was a it felt like a huge job, and it is a huge job. Yeah. Well, portraying Michelle uh, must have been a little fraught uh, as uh, the director, and you, you again are portraying a real person. And I think it would have been easy to vilify her in some ways. She wasn't a particularly good mother. I think admits that at some point during the film. Mm-hmm. But I thought that she was portrayed really empathetically as someone who had made some bad choices and was that sort of set the rest of her life on a certain course. So tell me about finding that empathy in a character uh, and and creating that for the screen. Yeah, when I started working on the project. I very much related to Sia. I related to her, her ambition and her desire to make something special out of her life. And obviously I didn't grow up off the grid or anything like that, but within the course of adapting and working on this project, I became a mother myself. And I had more empathy towards Michelle all of a sudden. You're listening to Carly Stone and Amanda Fix on The Richard Krause Show. Their movie, North of Normal, is now on VOD. I think Michelle is harsher in the book, and I, I knew I didn't want to go fully in, as full in the dark directions as the book sometimes goes uh, for the film, but I thought it would be very com- a more compelling thing to see on screen is here's this mother that you fall in love with and she's so charming and she's so playful and like oh don't you just love her but then you catch yourself because you kind of start to feel bad for loving her and I thought that was an interesting thing to play with so I think it was my own experiences in motherhood that inspired me. The -the off-the-grid lifestyle that's shown in the film I thought was really interesting. Certainly nothing that I had ever really experienced. I can't imagine that you have a great deal of experience (laughs) with it either, Amanda. Tons. Tell me a little bit about, do you do research? How how do you uh, figure out 
uh, your your place in that kind of world when you're going to play it on screen? I think that, I mean, well, the parts that I am in in the film, I'm not, I don't act in the in the wilderness yeah. but but I was there on set when they were filming and and it it I felt so transformed in that I felt like like what I read in the book was translated so well in the set and and the set design was so great and and the land that that we were so graciously able to use um just helped me visualize it more and um, I think just how well written the book was and how detailed it was and the conversations that I had with Sia like stories and and, and pictures and, and all that is just was just so helpful with 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 creating her backstory before she comes into the city to, to be with her mom you have a great line uh, in the film where you say, and it's a paraphrase, but you say something like, I've got a great face and I'm going to use it or I'm going to do something with it. And, I, you know, I, I, loved, uh, I loved that moment in the film because there are sometimes just these little moments in movies that tell you so much about the character in a line or two, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that for me... Um, said a great deal about Sia. Did you see it the same way? Am I seeing something that wasn't there, or is that <laughs> was that a key for you? Um, for me, I, that felt like a pivotal moment because yeah. I feel like she's she's quite when she comes into the city. I feel like she feels like such an outsider, which mm. makes the most sense ever to me. And and you see it when she goes to school, and, and you see it especially there when she's saying that this is so not what my family would approve of but here I am doing it anyway because you know like what else do I have to offer and and I think that 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 insecurity of having that background which is so unusual and that that you can tell is judged if, if people really saw how it was um, she caught herself there and said you know like but you know, I have a great face, so like, you know, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah. Um, even though she completely offended those those casting agents, probably. But um, yeah, that that did that did hold hold something in me, and I think that that was her connecting her 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 childhood and and what she grew up with, and then trying to blend it with this with this whole like crazy world of of like commercialization yeah. and all that which is just which United they yeah, yeah exactly i'm trying to make us a family we already are a family can't just be the two of why not why can't you just choose me that was Carly Stone and Amanda Fix on The Richard Krause Show. Their movie, North of Normal, is now on VOD. Big thanks to Carly and Amanda for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Tom Rockman. You can find his book, The Imposters, wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks also goes to Paul Langlois, who joined us earlier on. His new album, Guess What?, is available now wherever fine music is sold. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>